Hey everyone, thanks for coming back to Real Leaders. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, and Real Leaders is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders in the world. Before we jump in with this week's episode, I want to make one ask. If you like this show, if you listen to others, please take a moment and rate this podcast on iTunes. It actually matters. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Seth Levine. He's a partner at Foundry Group, a venture fund headquartered in Boulder, Colorado. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Sue. Great. I can't wait to dive into today's topic. I'm not even going to blow the lead. I'm just going to hold on to it. So, Seth, the way we start every Real Leaders podcast is to ask our guests to give us their three-minute life story. I'm not keeping time, but go. Okay. Three-minute life story. I grew up in Boston. I went to college in Minnesota. And I lived in New York for a while. I moved out to Colorado, where my dad is from, and where I'd spend my summers, in 1996, thinking it would be fun to climb some mountains and learn how to ski. And in the meantime, I got a few jobs and worked for a few different companies. In uh, 2001, I met Brad Feld, who's now my partner, and went to uh, work for him at a company that was called SoftBank Venture Capital. It was Palo Alto-based, and he and I and one other guy were the Colorado outpost. I learned a bunch of very valuable lessons. Um, Being in venture in 2001 was a challenge. They actually called me the angel of death for a while because my role was to come into companies and basically help unwind them. I'd done a little bit of that before I, I showed up. But it was interesting. I learned a lot. Obviously, Brad was an incredible person to learn from. And then in 2005, Brad and Jason and Ryan, my two other partners now, and I decided we would start our own firm. So we came together in 2006 and started Foundry. We fundraised our first fund in 2007. Uh, We raised $225 million, and we've now raised almost $2 billion in the last 10 years. You have a real specific interest. I know this because I've, I know you. You have an interest in inclusive teams. You have an interest in fostering and encouraging female leaders. Where did that come from in your life? I think I've, I think I've always had a sense for sort of equality and balance. Um, I've always run in circles that had a diversity in them. Um, and it's something in my life that, I, you know, I think unfortunately, perhaps I took for granted. And I'm sure we'll talk about what it means to take something like that for granted. But I realized, especially as I got into tech and I got into venture, that that we can't take it for granted because there really isn't that kind of balance. And so I, I think it drove me to be more thoughtful about it and to try to be more deliberate in being inclusive. I'd also say that the data are pretty clear, right? Diversity, not just of gender, all sorts of diversity, but diverse teams uh, do better. Um, And I've been on teams that were diverse and where people brought the diversity of their opinions to the table. And those were uh, by far the best teams that I've worked on. I've also worked on some teams where everyone kind of had the same background and it felt like we were sort of all repeating each other and we actually weren't getting a broad perspective. And so I've both lived the value of diversity, but I also believe in the value of diversity very deeply. And we're in a weird time. I mean, we're recording this episode on the heels some of some really, really rotten stuff coming out of Silicon Valley, stuff that I imagine was even maybe even harder for you to read about than for me to read about. You obviously know more of the people. What was it like seeing the news coming out of Silicon Valley around sexual harassment, some instances potentially of sexual assault associated with venture and funding? I mean, it's incredibly troubling. It's it's troubling on all sorts of levels. Uh, Personally, I felt like I, I, I think I had not understood at all how pervasive 
harassment is, not just in tech and in venture, but just across industries. And very specifically, I had not realized how pervasive harassment is in the technology industry. I think I had this view that if you weren't part of the problem, then you were sort of de facto part of the solution. And I, I think my biggest realization over the last six or eight weeks since we've, we as an industry, we've all been talking about this, is that that, that was just wrong, totally wrong. And that actually um, the only way to affect change is to be a part of the actual solution. And that could look like calling out harassment when you see it actually happening. That could look like taking demonstrable steps towards creating diverse environments, either at conferences that you either attend or run or in your firm. Those are the things that are going to create change. Sitting back and saying, hey, I don't harass anyone, therefore I'm a good guy or something. I, I think a lot of people thought that that was doing good, but I think I think now people are starting to open their eyes and realize that table stakes are not being bad. Table stakes are actually leaning in and trying to, to affect change in our industry. So Seth, I know you primarily because you've been extremely involved and amazingly supportive of MergeLane, the investment fund, and so far an accelerator moving forward to a different model in 2018. We obviously appreciate that a great deal. I see the time and effort and insight you share with us and our team as an example of walking the walk. And just so it's clear and it's here, you have lots of examples of walking the walk on this issue. And I just wonder if you could share some of those. Well, so I think, so I appreciate that. Certainly I've enjoyed the time that we've spent together. I was excited about working with you and Elizabeth in part because I recognized that there was a need to do more in in venture. And in part, and I said this to you when we first met, because I thought it was a great business model. You're a classic entrepreneur. You identified a problem in the market for which you had a great solution. Uh, the problem was that female founders were underrepresented in accelerators and, and in, in the models as they had been, you know, had been executed to date. And you had a solution for it, which is that you were going to put together a, uh, an accelerator program that was focused on companies that had at least one female in, in leadership. And that was a really smart business model. But certainly that was something that I was attracted to, not only because I thought it was a real opportunity to correct something in our industry, but also because I felt it was a really good business model. So that that's an example. I think in general, Foundry has tried to be not just inclusive and supportive of the women that we all work with, but also recognize that there aren't as many women in venture, there aren't as many women in leadership as we'd like to see. And so we've taken a number of steps, not just to back individually funds that are, for example, focused on on women. We've backed several funds that are, are either female GP-led or are focused on uh, companies that are led or include women in leadership. But we've also, I think, really tried to be focused on on bringing more women into positions of leadership uh, sort of across the portfolio. Another example I'd include is the conference that we run uh, called Glucon. Tech conferences are notoriously uh, male-skewed, male-dominated. And in part, they're male-dominated because um, I think organizers are lazy. And so we've taken a number of steps with Glue, which is a conference that we, we run in connection with, uh, with another guy that uh, helps us basically execute the conferences. And so, for example, um, we've really pushed hard to get more female speakers. And we have a rule, which is that 
every time we invite a male to speak, we invite a female to speak. That's great. And that helps create real balance. We've also, at those conferences, gone to partners like Salesforce, and they've sponsored um, very specific, uh, basically underwritten tickets for women to come to the conference to make sure that we're doing everything we can to encourage uh, women not just to speak, but to attend. Great. And Foundry's made a number of investments, particularly recently, in companies that have at least one female leadership. I mean, you should feel free to talk about at least one of those, maybe a consumer-targeted one in which we're both investors. <laughs> I love it. So interestingly, we don't have a directive, of course, to invest in, in female-led businesses, but there are lots of great businesses out there that are founded by women or, and run by women. And many of the great CEOs that we work with are women. And of course, there's, there's one that we share in common, which uh, is a company called Havenly, which has created a marketplace for um, basically interior design. They sell furniture, but before that, they allow people, consumers to access designers and design a room. In some respects, that uh, investment came because we recognized that most of the GPs in venture are kind of like us, middle-aged white guys. I was sitting around and thinking about what what am I missing? What's my blind spot? VCs tend to invest in things that resonate with them. And so if most VCs are white and middle-aged and male, they're investing in things that resonate with white, middle-aged guys. And so I, I actually put the word out pretty broadly that I was interested in businesses that might be female-led. They didn't necessarily have to be female-led, but that would, were focused on markets that specifically that were targeting women as, as customers, uh, because I felt like those were markets that perhaps uh, VCs and my peers were not thinking about. Um, and so as part of that, someone introduced me to Lee at, at Havenly, happens to be a female founder, focused on a business that is targeting more female consumers. Both the designers tend to skew female, the users of the platform, actually, interestingly enough, didn't skew as much as I would have thought when I first heard about the business. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, one of their best customer segments are right. actually young guys yeah. because they don't know what they're doing, I guess, about design, yep. <laughs> and they have some disposable income to spend on it. Anyway, that's how I first met uh, met Lee and, and is in part what attracted me to that investment. Great. So, Seth, it's six weeks ago or whatever it is. News is coming out of Binary Capital, coming out of 500 startups. You must know all of these people. It was pretty jarring even not knowing them personally. What is your reaction as, I think your quote is, a middle-aged white guy in the context of this industry? Just start with personally before we get to the firm's activities. Yeah, I, I, I would say I'm profoundly disappointed. So the, the sort of two more high-profile cases, we've co-invested with Binary before. I, don't, I didn't know Justin myself. But actually, the one that was a little bit more personal just because I knew him much better was, was Dave McClure. And I've spent time with Dave. We've shared meals. I've, you know, I've been to their demo days. I, I, I was profoundly disappointed for someone who professes such a globalist view, such an inclusive view of the world, to find out that basically he's a scumbag, for lack of a better way of saying it, jerk, asshole, pick your term. I was incredibly disappointed. It made me angry. And I remember when this went down, we were communicating some. I'm sure you were getting a lot of communication from men and women alike and somebody did a blog post about taking this issue seriously before we get to that reaction and where that's landed six to eight weeks later you sent me a really interesting note or me and elizabeth a note you said my inclination is to reach out to the female founders or leaders in our portfolio with a note of support and you weren't sure if that was the quote-unquote right thing what did you end up doing and what was your worry so i i think that 
in an environment where emotions are heightened, I think I was just simply sensitive to, to doing something stupid, right? I wanted to be thoughtful. I had a very strong reaction. A lot of people had really strong reactions. I was concerned that for, for starters that I thought the voices that needed to be heard were the women that were coming forward and I didn't want to necessarily do something that would sort of take up airtime for lack of a better way of saying it. That's great. I also didn't want to do something that I thought would be seen as sort of lip service or or frankly wasn't very well thought through and so I was worried about that. But at the same time I wanted to express support for the women that I work with to let them know that I was concerned, that I value them as professionals, and I value our relationship. So I was worried about it. What I ended up doing was um, there were, were a few women in our portfolio who were sort of speaking out publicly, and I felt like those were the women that I wanted to, rather than sort of single out all of the women in the portfolio and somehow assume that they needed this note of support from me, I instead decided that there were a few women that were speaking out and were being public about it. I wanted to express my support for their being public about it. So I did send a, a, a few notes out to those women that were doing that to say, hey, I'm, I think what you're doing is great. And you know, I, Seth, and we, Foundry, are totally behind you. What I think is so interesting about this issue and having been involved for the last three years in this issue in some way is how challenging it is for men to talk about this. And I think in one of our first meetings, one of the things I said to you is, we just want to make this conversation available because until it's okay to have this conversation where men and women are participating in creating solutions, and that's true across all forms of diversity for lots of different kinds of people, there actually will not be change until it's safe for men to talk about their own feelings about issues like this. So I appreciate that you were willing to do it. I also really appreciated that you asked the question. Elizabeth, my partner at Merchling, posted something she wrote a blog post and I think the headline is something like hey men we don't want you to quote unquote support us we want you to value us and I think that's some of what you're touching on in the time that's passed does that mean anything more to you than it may have before do you get that delineation yeah so part of what I described earlier about realizing that not being a part of the problem wasn't actually being part of the solution sort of came from in part reading that post that Elizabeth put up and realizing that being supportive, is, it's sort of a throwaway, right? It's not its not actually addressing anything in, that's really a problem, right? Well, I mean, Also, for lack of a better word, it's also paternalistic. Yeah, it's pejorative, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, paternalistic is probably a better way of saying yeah. it, exactly. If that's pejorative, we're in trouble. But anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, I totally agree, right? I mean, I think that that's and again, this is—I mean, this is why I reached out to you before I sent a note out because I'm—I was sensitive to coming across as paternalistic, or, or perhaps being Elizabeth hadn't written that at that point, but being supportive and realizing that that wasn't the right, necessarily the right stance. So, you know, NCWIT has a really interesting series of articles on being advocates, right, that are, are targeted to men, basically, who are asking the question, hey, what can I do to, to actually be helpful? I think it's it's worthwhile reading. It's on the NCWIT, uh, which is the National Center for Women in, in Technology. It's it's on their website. I think it's an interesting read for people that for, for both men and women. But I think it's it's one perspective on how to value women in the workplace, how to be supportive of. Really, it's, it applies to all sorts of diversity in the workplace, even if you come from the background of being not diverse. So, as I'm talking to you, it just strikes me that there may not be a place in our economy or our society where the thread between money and power is, is more pronounced. Like being a venture investor 
That is where power comes from, explicitly money. The fact that, look, whether there are female venture partners at more funds or less funds, the fact that still overwhelmingly money is concentrated with white males in your industry makes this problem particularly difficult to approach. What do, what do you think about it broadly? I think it's absolutely a problem. I, and I feel like the more holistic solution in, includes not just more women entrepreneurs, female founders, female executives, but ultimately includes more more females at venture firms. And I say that fully recognizing that I have a partnership that has that is all white men, all middle-aged white men. We really have no diversity of any kind. It's challenging because venture firms don't grow quickly. And, and there's some big name firms in the Valley that have more partner sort of turnover, if you will, they've had more opportunities. And even those firms are sort of just starting to recognize that diversity in investment decisions and in investment professionals is important. I don't have a great answer for it, Sue, because I, I know it's important. And I think the change will come, but it's going to take a deliberate effort and it's going to take some time. And I know based on, no, no, I mean, I know you think it's advantageous. Like, I know you think having different kinds of people around, even looking at investment op- opportunities is seriously advantageous, even if we leave aside the sort of post-investment engagement that people might do with your portfolio companies. One of the things that strikes me about this conversation is that when you, and, and we've had this conversation too, is when a fund, and Merge Lane is a fund, looks at adding someone to its team, something that we've talked about uh, as a possibility. We have two partners now, and we've thought about adding a third one. The main most important criterion is connections to other investors and ability, particularly we're in a fundraising cycle now, but the ability to contribute to successful fundraising. And that just reinforces, I mean, you can just see how this cycle gets repeated, right? Absolutely. I think that one of the things I realize now being in venture that I didn't realize when I was trying to get into venture is sort of how clubby it is. There's so many very specific advantages. It's like sort of the old adage, like, how do you make a million dollars? You start with a million. Well, you start with a million dollars and you make your... Venture is set up, unfortunately, to favor those who are already on the inside. And so when the people on the inside look a certain way, they're white, they're male, the whole system ends up perpetuating that, not just because of what you just described, but because the system essentially promotes from within. And so it's, it all sort of exacerbates itself, right? And so I think the, the ultimately the solution is to be, well, one, we're talking about it, that's good. Two, uh, we're starting to measure it. People are actually starting to report on it, so that's really important. And then three is that people need to start taking deliberate steps to say, hey, we know that diversity actually will drive more value in the portfolio, um, and so we're going to deliberately try to bring more diversity into our firm. So I know that you and your partners have spent, I believe, real time trying to think through a reasonable, wise approach in the wake of these events. Where are you on that? It's very much still a work in progress. We've done a handful of things. Um, We came out very early after some of the stories emerged of harassment and created what we call the zero tolerance policy. Really, that was a straw man. That's not a policy yet. It was a straw man, um, which really stated our intent, which is that we have zero tolerance for harassment of any kind in our portfolio, across our own firm, uh, in our investment decisions, et cetera. We're in the process of figuring out the right way to sort of fully implement that. Um, But we were very public about it, and we wanted to be public about it because we felt like we had a relatively 
loud voice, uh, both in the venture industry and amongst entrepreneurs. We wanted to be really clear that we we stood on the side of of no tolerance. Um, so that was really important. But the as you know, as a former lawyer, well, I guess you're always a lawyer, but <laughs> former practicing lawyer, you know, implementing a policy versus stating your intent, you know, takes time. And so we're we're in the process of that. We've also been participating in, I think, in a leadership position, but participating in a group of VCs that are trying to help create a, a sort of like a resource library, for lack of a better way of saying saying it, to help other companies, other investors, under other firms develop their own policies. Uh, one of the things we realized was there's there's not a lot of information out there. There's no standard sexual harassment policy, right? I guess you could ask your lawyer, and, and some firms have that. But there weren't standard sets of documents for things like that, standard grievance processes, and things of that nature. And so we're in the process of working with, it's a pretty broad group right now, uh, but of people to help pull together those sorts of resources that we think will be helpful to the broader industry, both venture and tech, and make it publicly available. That's incredibly helpful. That sounds fantastic. I personally appreciate that you guys have spent time and bandwidth on this issue, and I know that you have. And what I'm wondering, and I'm wondering if this cynicism enters your mind, is that if money equals power, and if for whatever reason, even knowing that the landscape of entrepreneurship is so much bigger than the landscape of venture, like this really is a narrow slice, but it's a slice that everyone thinks about when they think about startups or small business. Do we believe that having a policy will take away the shame, the stigma, the fear that people might have in going public? Obviously, this was a really brave moment in our time. Maybe it was a sea change. Maybe it changes everything forever. So maybe these policies work. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so at first, I think we should acknowledge flat out that there are so many more cases of harassment probably ongoing right now that haven't been reported. So while I think it's awesome that so many women have come forward, so many people have come forward, to tell their stories and to call this out, I think we also need to acknowledge that we've barely sort of scratched the tip of the iceberg. So I think we've got a long way to go, right? I think it's great that this is, we're, we're starting to move towards an environment where some people feel empowered to tell their stories, but I think we also need to recognize that in industries where there is massive power imbalance, there will always be, whether that's boss to employee or investor to entrepreneur or any other type of power imbalance, there will always be the incentive not to come forward because there's a cost not to come forward. I'm personally aware of stories um, that aren't mine to tell that are I mean, they're not 100% credible. They're, they are the, they are actually the things that happen. Not I didn't wit the one I'm thinking about. I didn't witness myself, but was told to me by someone who I know to be absolutely truthful. And you know, this person doesn't feel comfortable coming forward with it. That's just one story. This is a pretty senior person too. So this is someone who who I think would be okay coming forward from a career standpoint. I think there's lots of reasons, and there there must be thousands of stories like that. I don't want to say that bugs me because it's not my position to judge whether this person should come forward or not. It bugs me that it exists, that this is clearly still ongoing. Do you have any concerns about backlash here that because so much of what happens in ventures, meetings, it's relational dynamics, it's getting together for meetings, do you have any concerns that this predominantly middle-aged white 
business is going to be even less likely to make more investments in female-led companies because of fear around this topic? So short answer is yes, I have concerns. The slightly longer answer is I I think we're going to be better than that. I I understand where people are coming from, and I I think it's right to talk about that. I, I don't think as an industry we're heading to a point where people will feel like they can't invest in women or they can't take a meeting with a female entrepreneur if they're a male venture capitalist. That's just our vice president. Just our other VP, than, right. He can't have dinner with a woman. Okay. Exactly. Him, right. That attitude is crazy. But so, yeah, there, certainly there will be people that feel that way. But I think as an industry, we're starting to, I hope, really wake up to sort of the reality of what's been going on to start calling this this sort of stuff out. And I think we also are at a point where there are so many great female entrepreneurs that sort of that that, that tide is rolling, right? Yeah. There, There's an opportunity to invest in great businesses, some of which are led by women. I don't think that's going to change. Yeah. But I think we need to be careful about it because I think there, there will be some times when or there will be some people who perhaps uh, have that reaction. I think we need to get over that because that's, that's not the way to approach yeah, this. Certainly. Anybody trolling you on this? Have you gotten any negative feedback? Well, I get negative feedback all the time. I mean, I can't put any, you know, I put it up on Twitter and people think I'm whatever, too anti-Trump or too this or too that. So uh, trolling is a strong word, so I, I wouldn't put it in that okay, category. But I, I get people who, who don't appreciate what I have to say about this. And you know, I, get it, I get it. That's part of the part of the game. I feel super comfortable putting myself out there about these sorts of things. I wouldn't say I'm happy to be to be trolled, I'm I'm okay with it because I recognize that that's just kind of part of taking stands on issues that are important. Great. You have kids. You have family, you have a wife and kids. What, what have you told your kids about this? So I have kids. I also have two black kids. Two of my three kids are adopted and they happen to have brown skin. And, you know, we've talked about diversity and race a lot, right? My wife and I uh, feel that it's important that they understand they understand that you know not the the whole world doesn't love them you know and and made let's just say we think it's important that they that they understand that there are people in the world that will judge them before they even meet them mm-hmm. um, and so we've you know we've had real conversations about that I, you know I came home the other day my son and I had been shopping somewhere and some he's nine almost ten he's he's super cute and this woman was just sort of the older lady was kind of fawning on oh and oh you're so cute and oh you're she was wearing a Barcelona t-shirt oh you're Barcelona shirt and and I said to my wife one I don't know that he would have gotten that attention if he hadn't been brown um, and two not to be cynical and I don't know this woman at all but you know gosh is this woman gonna gonna cross the street uh, when he's walking down the street when he's 15 even though he's super cute now when he's nine almost 10 I mean it just I, I don't know why that was the first thing that came to my mind but that's oh, what I was thinking about sad. not that she was I mean, she was being sort of overly solicitous, which people sometimes do with our kids because they want to show how inclusive they are or whatever, which is fine. Like, I guess it's okay, but I don't know. I wonder how that's going to change. And of course, I've read a lot about it. I've asked, I have friends who are, are black and, you know, I've asked some of my male black friends, hey, what, it, like, when did it change? What do I need to be, you know, I feel yeah. sort of unprepared about, you know, about, about that. Um, and of course, two of my, two of my kids are, are, are girls. And so we've talked a little bit about gender equality, and, and one of my daughters in particular is really interested in math, and, and, and she's also a natural leader, 
um, really both my girls are natural leaders, and I'm, I'm watching how sometimes the feedback they get for things that I think boys perhaps are praised for that girls aren't. I'm just sort of watching that happen. That's interesting. So, you know, this is something we talk about in our family because we think it's important. Um, but I, I will say um, there's a sort of a common refrain, and you hear it all the time when something happens. And people say, well, you know, as the father of daughters, I feel, and I always tell people, I think that's kind of bullshit. How about as the father of a son mm. or just as a person, this sort of thing is unacceptable. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I do want to be careful about, you know, ha- the fact that I happen to have daughters doesn't necessarily mean I should think differently about this issue like why do why do I need to have girls versus having a boy versus not having any kids to feel passionately about issues around equality gender and otherwise in our industry thanks for sharing that I uh I want to just comment on this point about being overly solicitous I was at the airport the other day and there was a family that was coming in that you know were were dressed as if they were, were Muslim and they had some placards on them, they, whatever. It seemed like they were just coming to the country for the first time. And I noticed myself wanting to just welcome them, like wanting to just be at the airport when they were not facing lawyers and travel bans and all the crap that they've been hearing about and just appreciate them for being here and let them know that I feel excited and I am a safe place as a person for them. And I really had a huge internal dialogue about how inappropriate, I ultimately gave them gigantic smiles, but it was only a tenth of what I actually wanted to do. To yeah. do. So vis-a-vis that um, woman you described in the store, I get the fact that things might change as your son ages, but honestly, I don't think we can have too much love. I think, uh, I don't know, I'm kind of touched by that story. Yeah, I, I think that's right, Sue. And I, you know, I wasn't turned off by it, yeah. It's but it's this funny thing that goes in the back of my head because I, I think I'm, you know, and maybe it's just because I've just gone through this. My girls are, are 13, and, you know, there's a big change between 10 and 13, um, but it feels to me like it went really fast. Yeah. And so my son, at just he's turning 10 in, in a couple of weeks, so at 10, let's say, realizing that, you know, at 13 or 14, his voice will have changed, he'll have gotten a lot bigger and taller. I mean, you know, he's a super cute little kid. Yeah. And, you know, that's going to change over the yeah. next couple of years. And, I, and for whatever reason, that's that's... That was in the back of my mind, but I wasn't mad at her for being. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And she was actually very sweet. She also couldn't hear very well, yeah. and so my son kind of mumbles, and she, <laughs> she couldn't quite understand. I was tra- kind of translating in between. It was, it was funny. That's cute. The last thing I really want to talk about is how your writing seems to be changing, and the things that you share publicly, just generally. Let's leave this topic, and I appreciate what you've shared on this topic. But the last blog post you wrote, the title is "Drowning," and. It was a very public statement about the forces you feel are present currently in your life and how you're reacting to creating balance and putting your attention where you want to put it. And I've really noticed this about you. I've noticed it about Brad. Certainly, if you spend any time with Jason Mendelson and he's speaking, you know he's coming from an authentic place. Sometimes it's nice to hear. Sometimes it sounds a little punitive, but whatever. It's authentic. Um, What's motivating you to be that public about what's going on in your life? Yeah. Well, so the truth about the drowning post, which was a post I wrote about uh, sort of being feeling overwhelmed. I have a, a few friends uh, who just diagnosed one in particular with really serious sort of very late stage cancer. Um, and he happens to be exactly my age. And I think that that hit, hit home. I'm, I'm troubled by politics. I'm troubled by uh, the things we just talked about going on in our industry. And I wrote about that. I wrote it and I wasn't sure if I was going to publish it. And, and I sort of read it a few more times and decided I would hit go. 
and then I almost immediately had this reaction like, no, 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 I should take that down before anyone sees it. Like that was, that was a little bit too personal, but I decided not to, um, because I felt like I felt strongly about how I was feeling. And I felt like I wanted to, to share that with both people I care about, um, but as well as just with the broader world. Um, I'm really glad I did it because I received a lot of great feedback. And probably the most common thing I heard were from people who emailed me who said, hey, I feel the same way. Like, it, it, really refreshing to see someone who sort of has maybe a public persona of, kind of sort of having it more together, um, certainly having plenty of advantages in life, you know, but realizing that like we, we all have struggles. That's really what made it worthwhile, right? I got a few catty things back, basically like, oh, VC has problems. You have to ignore that, right? That's neither here nor there. But but for the, <laughs> the vast majority of the feedback I got back was super positive. I, it doesn't come natural to me necessarily to, to write about things that are quite so personal, but I've also realized that it's important to always write from the heart, no matter what the topic is, but that to be a little vulnerable can can actually uh, do some good, not just in terms of how people understand me or react to me, but also um, how they think about their own life circumstances. And, you know, I think I've, I've gotten to a place in life where um, I feel grounded with my partners, with my business, with my, my spouse, my family, and where I feel like I can, um, I can say these things and say them publicly. And one of the things I said is I, I'm kind of sick of pretending like I'm always working or like somehow family isn't, you know, the most important thing for me. And I'm going to, we all have tendency to sort of be, oh, I'm at a meeting, right, when you're at a soccer game or something like that. And I, one of the things I said in that post, um, which I, I had always sort of done, but I think I'm going to be more conscious about it. It's just there's no need to hide behind w- what you're doing and, and that you're prioritizing things that are, are non-work in your life. Um, and I think I want to really make a conscious effort to start doing that. I don't have children, so I have a, a close friend, and we worked at a company, and they would frequently talk about work-life balance, something that I almost never utter as a result of this. But neither of us had kids, and we always wanted to institute the golf life balance, that golf was just as valid as a soccer game <laughs> of one of your children, at least it was to us. Seth, last question. Every real leader's guest has to answer this question. So I hold this belief that we have received one piece of feedback from age two, you might see this with your own kids, and no matter how much work we do on it, how much refinement, how much feedback, and growth and effort we put into it, we still get some version of this feedback in in current day, both on the personal front and the professional front. If I'm right, what's yours? Wow. That's a good one. It has to be something I'm still working on. Yeah. <laughs> if you figured out one of these, I'm pretty impressed. Yeah. Yeah. One thing, some version of it, it gets better and better every year. But like, gosh, darn it. I yeah. can't believe it. I still got that. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received, and it's something that I, I do still work on, is um, this notion that relationships aren't 50-50. They're 100%, 100%. Mm. And it's so easy to revert back and just sort of assume, hey, I'm going to meet whomever I'm, I'm talking about halfway. But the relationships are, that are important are relationships that you need to take 100% responsibility for. It was a great piece of advice, and it's something that, that I'm still working on. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I personally, and on behalf of our company, feel like we actually see you really being successful in that regard, and we appreciate that. Seth Levine has been here. He's a partner at the Foundry Group. 
if you want to follow Seth, and I'm sure he's going to keep writing authentic pieces from the heart and certainly tweeting authentic tweets from the heart, follow him at, at Sether, S-E-T-H-E-R. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. Sether. Great. And foundrygroup.com is where you'll find Foundry. For, for my money, authentic leadership is the biggest indicator of partners, and that applies to venture partners too. So if you're in that space, even if you're in the, on the West Coast or the East Coast, you should be talking to Foundry Group. Thanks, Seth, for joining us. As always, Real Leaders is brought to you by MergeLane. We're looking toward the next chapter at MergeLane, and we're marrying the best features of an accelerator with those of a venture fund, focusing on startups with at least one female in leadership. If you want to hear more about what that looks like and the revolutionary new Funderator, pay attention. It won't be the last time you hear about it. Or our three-day leadership camps, please come to MergeLane.com. Thanks for being with us again. We'll see you next time on Real Leaders. If you have comments, feedback, questions, or want to know how to rate this podcast, find me on Twitter at TellSue. Thanks again.